Yeah, it's uh, we know it's cheesy, but we believe in it. Our, our mission is just to make the whole church whole again. Hey, Pastor, how's it going? How you doing today, Joe? Doing good, doing good. You know, say pastor. I guess not everybody knows who you are. I'm with uh, Pastor Gary Atkins today. So uh, the pastor of my uh, home church, Harvest Ministries in Rock Hill, South Carolina. He is uh, the pastor here. He's uh, graduated from Columbia International with his pastoral ministries and a minor in Bible. I guess, you know, it's a good thing to minor in if you're going to teach the Bible. Good book. Good book. <laughs> good book. Okay, yeah, I heard, heard some good stuff about it, actually. <laughs> well, this is actually uh, the first podcast for our new uh, new podcast, The Whole Church Podcast. So it's great to have you for this. And I want to talk about uh, unity in the church. But before we did that, of course, I want to touch on just the basics of what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. You know, who better to talk to than my pastor about that? Sure, sure. Oh, man. So um, I think, man, I, I don't want to say my first memory with you, but no, one of my first memories is at camp. Yeah. And uh, I, I did this thing where I, like, curled up, like, head first to my knees for some reason, like, <laughs> a, like a ball, and I fell straight off the second bunk. Well, Josh, there were only... um. Uh, there weren't sheets and blankets. There were sleeping <laughs> bags, and all you had was a sleeping bag. And during the night, I would hear a thump. And it wasn't a thump <laughs> like a child hitting the concrete floors, but it was a thump of something. And I would look up, and it would be your sleeping bag. But you would never wake up. You'd never crawl down and get it. You would just curl up on a little ball trying to keep warmth among yourself, you know. And, uh, and I would probably do that two or three times during the night, get up, stuff you back in your sleeping bag, go back and lay down. And then invariably, by the time morning light came, you were back there without your sleeping bag, curled up in a ball. But it never seemed to phase you. You just went right through it, slept right through So on. is that a, <laughs> being too lazy to get your sleeping bag, does that, does that count as slothfulness? Well, no, I, I found all the children were kind of like that. Oh, so, uh, no, it was, uh, but you know, you speak of camp and, and you know, you speak of uh, what's the church all about. Well, camp was a great illustration of, of trying to get people saved. You know, the church basically believes there's a creator uh, that made all of us. It also believes that because of original sin, which Adam and Eve committed in the garden, that um, that we're all born into sin. Everybody's born into sin. And then um, not only are we born into sin, but we choose to sin. So we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by choice. And then the church believes that the creator, yeah, the double whammy, um, which basically means we were without hope. Uh, we were hopelessly sinners, but God loved us so much that he sent his own son, Jesus, into the world, and he would be the sacrifice, the substitute down a cross in order to pay the price for our sins, for our transgressions. And um, and so really the goal of the church is to tell the lost world, which you and I were both a part of until Christ came in our lives, that there is a way, that there is a savior, that there is a remedy for their condition of sin. And so that's really... In a very small and tiny summarization, that's the purpose of the church. I told you I was going to ask questions on behalf of the audience. So sure. This one's for someone out there. Maybe they, they don't know much about the gospel. Yeah. What's, um, other than, you know, not going to hell, yeah. what's, uh, what's the difference between a saved life and, you know, your life beforehand? Is it just you act different or is it something Well, well the Bible says it's a, it's a complete transformation. In fact, the Bible says anyone who's in Christ becomes a new creation. And it specifies that old things pass away and behold, all things become new. The Bible also calls it a rebirth. Um, and to me, is a great analogy to say that um, 
there's just something new that happens within you. And to be saved is to be a different person. Now, it does not make you a perfect person because the scripture talks about the need to grow, the need to mature in Christ. But the Bible does say that I can grow. I can kind of grow up like I do physically. I can do that spiritually. But, but the analogy is that when you become a Christian, you become a brand new person. Uh, and that old things uh, have passed away and things have changed drastically. So I know what that feels like, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. No. But if someone asked me, I don't know if I could describe the, you know, the feeling of, you know, beforehand when you're in the spirit and then after that moment. Yes. yes. Could, is there a way to like put that into words or is it just something you have to admit it's just indescribable? Well, well, there's some parts of it I think that would be indescribable. In fact, there's several times in the New Testament where the writers are writing about something and they just kind of trip out on praise. They just start glorifying God because they come to a place where there's really no words to describe. And so they just begin to magnify God for his glorious plan for his glorious gospel, the glorious salvation that he provides for us. Um, maybe the best way to describe it is that that you just feel new on the inside. I remember when I got saved, it was like something had been on my shoulders and someone came along and kind of lifted it off. And then when I saw the world, and I've heard this from other people through the years, it's not that the world had changed, but everything looked different to me. Uh, it was new to me because the perspective that I looked at it through had completely changed. And so it really is Christ doing a work of rebirth on the inside of us. And um, and I agree with you. In a lot of ways, it's undescribable. Yeah. And I know this is one I, just, I didn't think of when I asked you, but now I'm thinking about it. I think one of the most interesting ways I think I've ever heard it sort of described. I had a friend, which I don't want to name drop here, but uh, went to camp with me. And I remember he prayed and he got back up. He said, I'm just filled with so much love for everybody here. He's just mm. talking about people. And, just, and I was like, man. And, and he was just a very, I'd say an angry person before that. And it was just kind of like, wow, that's that's such a weird difference to see. Like, you almost see it in his face. Excellent. Yeah. You know, I before I was a pastor, I was an evangelist. And I was a young man at that time. And so a lot of times when I did revivals, the young people were primarily, we'd have youth revivals. The yeah. local church would. And I think that's a great, great answer to that. I would often see a, a young person come out of the altar. And when I looked at their face, their countenance, there was a visible change. And I've seen that through the years many, many times over uh, where they just look different. They just look different. And um, and I think that's a reflection of what's happened on the inside. of them. It's kind of coming through their own countenance. Now, I didn't plan on talking about it, but use the word hopeless. Mm-hmm. And that was that just... Weirdly enough, made me think of a Bible study we did in Isaiah a long time ago. I think I was in Charleston at that point. But they, uh, the first like half of the book is all talking about just the judgment that's coming. And then the second half, it's all sort of about that hope. And I know a lot of prophecies about you know the coming Messiah are what we look to in Isaiah, that like, mm-hmm. second half. Mm-hmm. I wonder, would you say one of the biggest differences in personal life would be beforehand you feel more hopeless as opposed to after you're saved? You have that hope of Christ. Well, well, I think um, what is it? Uh, was it Sartre that that uh, said the logical conclusion of a man without God, if he doesn't believe in God, is despair. If there's no Creator, if uh, that simply means there's no meaning that you can make it up. In fact, in our society, it's becoming so popular for everybody to talk about morality. Um, now they don't believe in a God. So my question is, where did they get their morality from? What is their moral base? 
without a creator, there is no moral base. And Josh, as you well know, that means there's nothing out there for us. Uh, It would just mean when we died, we died. There would be nothing beyond that. And would also mean that there was no redemption for this life. That ultimately, it really wouldn't matter what we did or didn't do. Not on a grand scale, because there would be no grand scale. And so I believe I believe that's a good word to use. I believe people without Christ are hopeless, because what is there to hope in? It's almost the reverse of C.S. Lewis's like near Christian. I dropped that name too many times. I just read C.S. Lewis good name, a lot. Good name to drop. But he, uh, you know, I think it's a part of how he said in mere Christianity that he was trying to prove Christ was just everybody does have this sense of morality. And what oh, what is the point if yeah. there isn't that? I mean, it's almost like the reverse of what we just said. You know, he built to that. And I was like, that's was good. Yeah, well, good it's, it's interesting to talk about morality in our current culture uh, because it's, it's, it's almost amusing hearing people argue against morality without using terms of morality because it's impossible. Um, and they come to this almost quandary of trying to say there is no uh, basic right and wrong, and yet they have to put it into moral terms because morality is a truth. It is a reality among the creation of God. And whether we want to admit it or not, it's still there. Yeah. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. So, a year ago, you introduced me to a book, The Cross of Christ by John R. W. Stott. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthful of a name. Yeah, big name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that was really good, which apparently you never knew. I went and got it. I was like, yeah. you saw it here. So oh, did I introduce you? <laughs> but yeah, no, I went and got it. I read it last year, and I just said, it's a really simple quote, but it's just a good, what, what I call it earlier, I called it a, a yay Jesus quote. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, it's here, he says, Christ died for our sins. Our sins were the obstacle preventing us from receiving the gift he wanted to give us. So they had to be removed before it could be bestowed, and he dealt with our sins or took them away by his death. And I guess that gift, in a lot of ways, it's that love, it's that hope, it's, I guess, everything you would read in, uh, what's that, Galatians 5, when he's talking about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, that's that gift he wanted to give us without it, kind of, absence of that. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a great way to put it. Um, everything, everything we believe about God is based on the fact that he loves his creation. Um, and everything he's done and as and is doing to reach out to mankind is motivated by love. And, and most all of us understand love is the great motivator. And it's probably the most powerful mo- motivator that exists among humanity. Oh, yeah. And the big reason I went to Jesus, other than, you know, it's a Christian podcast, so you should always go to Jesus. <laughs> there right? you go. But you know, uh, we talked the other day, and uh, you know, I'm asking, like, what's it take for the church to be unified? And we talked a lot about, we have to agree on who Jesus is. And everything yeah. else kind of falls from that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm looking at uh, the book of Ephesians. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, Paul writing about what did, what is church? And he's trying to, you know, exhort them, explain to them what the church is. And the first two chapters are him explaining Jesus. Yeah. And then in James, he's saying, hey, listen, if you don't do right, if you don't act like Jesus acted, we can't be united. And John, he's like, hey, if you're in the truth, we're united. If you're not in the truth, you're in darkness. Yes. Yeah. And it's just, uh, if we don't agree on Jesus, we can't have unity. Well, I, I think that's it. You know, as we talked the other day, Josh, um, in discussing this subject, we talked about the danger inherent of, in trying to create unity outside of Jesus, outside of the gospel. 
And what that means is, I know Josh, you're a Florida State fan, and I hope your listeners, <laughs> hope your listeners will forgive you of that fact. But um, but I know you're a big Florida State fan. So let's say on a Saturday down in Tallahassee, you could be united with a bunch of people you've never met before. Well, I'd have to ask their forgiveness, though. There you go. You know what I did? What? So last week I had an interview with a guy. I accidentally helped us hire a gator. I didn't even know it. Well, I, I'm gonna let you handle that with your folks, but um, it weighing on it. <laughs> well, it's confession's good for oh, the soul. Um, but what I'm saying is, you could go down there, put on your Florida State gear, get in the stands, and you're united with eighty thousand plus persons. Why? Because we all are rooting on this football team. We all have a common unity in Florida State football. Um, but that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so the danger inherent in trying to create unity is we'll create around something and we might be unified on, in whatever that something is. But if it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, it has nothing to do with the glory of God. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that's the danger sometimes when I hear the church people trying to create unity. Um, I always wonder, well, how are you doing that? Um, and what I see in the scripture is that unity is already there. We're just called to maintain it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, now, I do want to ask everybody when doing these podcasts if they've ever seen or experienced any kind of kind of tension in the church when it comes to unity. Or, which, you know, every, everybody has that sort of same response to just smile or laugh. We, well, if they haven't, it. they haven't been to church. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I tell people even when they come here, I said, hang around long enough. And sometimes people will come to me quickly and say, I'd like to join a church. I said, well, wait a while. I want you to see the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, because that's the reality in every church because the church is made up of people. Yeah. And people have shortcomings and people have uh, differences. And so we have to be careful. And most of the time when I've seen conflict in the church through the years, uh, minor issues were always, you know, could be silly things, practices within the church, you know, what time we're going to have Sunday school. Are we going to have Sunday school? What color the carpet's going to be? Are we going to buy new pews? Are we going to have chairs? And so there can be conflict in the church over a lot of what I call inconsequential things as far as yeah. salvation. But anytime I've seen major conflict, it always has to do with doctrinal issues. Um, major conflict usually doesn't take part over the color of the carpet. But major conflict <laughs> yeah. can come where you and I disagree on a doctrinal truth that might pertain to salvation. Um, and so the, to me, there's different levels of conflict in the church. But to say there's never any conflict is, I, I don't see it practically, and I don't see it in Scripture. Yeah. I got so many questions. Um, I do, on that, on, as far as that subject goes, I know I had a professor, who's a Dr. Peter Beck. You know, shout out to him, I guess. I can, I can use that name. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's a great guy. He was my theology professor. I know our first day of class, because, you know, I guess he's just, foreseeing tension in the class, <laughs> you know, teaching theology. And uh, he, he talked about how there's primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. And he said, listen, tertiary, there, there's stuff we can disagree on, even doctrinally, that I can just, we can still worship in the same place. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Then there's stuff that he said was secondary. He's like, I might not be able to worship in the same place. And I, I think he listed particularly, well, I think he said baby baptism. He's like, yeah. a lot of people, you disagree about that. Might not should be part of the same congregation, but you should still call each other brother and sister. And they said there's the primary stuff that's that's the core doctrine, like what you were talking about, you know, image of man, fall of man, the need of a savior, all, all that kind of stuff. If we don't agree on that, I can't call you my brother and my sister. Yeah. yeah. 
And no, I, I agree with that. Um, now, in the particulars of that, people might even disagree. There may be uh, conflict. Or I think that's primary. You think yeah, exactly. Secondary. So you can even have conflict over what you say was a primary or tertiary issue. But no, I, I full agreement with that. There's a lot of things that you and I could see a little different and still worship. He's, I believe he's correct, too. There might be some issues where we say, well, if you see it that way, I don't even feel like we could maybe worship together. Doesn't mean I can't still call you brother, uh, wish you Godspeed. Uh, but then there's some other issues that if we part on those, like the doctrine of who Jesus is, uh, the doctrine of sin, well, then probably not only can I not worship with you, but now I can't even refer to you as a brother. In fact, John tells us in First John, he says, uh, I shouldn't even acknowledge those things or receive you into my house because then I'm a partaker of your sins. And so there's certain things that are just lines in the sand that we have to part company over. I was actually, I was reading First John earlier, so I'm not going to find it. But I think that was, no, one of the Johns made, um, yeah, yeah, there it is. It's a uh, First John three nine. He mm-hmm. said, "No one who is born of God practices sin." Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't mean, and now that I'm saved, you know, I have the hope. I'm never going to mess up again, right? No, no. He well, the the term there, practices sin, in the Greek is the idea of um, habitually sinning. Yeah. If you go to Romans chapter two, when Paul talks about the judgment of Christ, he says we're all going to be judged, and then he says this: "You're going to be judged according to your deeds or your works." which flies in the face of everything we know from Ephesians chapter 2, where the Bible says we're not saved by our works. It's by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul, in chapter 2 of Romans, when he talks about the judgment of God, and he says, I'm going to be judged according to my deeds, well, the Bible scholar, the Bible student has to ask, you know, what's he talking about? Well, he goes on to explain it, and he says, for those who uh, in in practice or, or in the in the course of their life, do good, they seek the glory of God, they seek the honor of God, and they seek eternal life, he says they'll be given eternal life. What he's saying is, if I'm truly saved, you could judge my life based on what you see in it, by my works. Why? Because my works, the practice of my life, will be an adequate reflection of who I am in Christ. And so when he says you can't make, you can't continue on sitting, what he's saying is, if I'm a child of God... And, and if you go back to John, uh, he says sin is lawlessness. Well, that means rebellion. Yeah. So let's say, John, uh, Josh, I do something for you, and I mean it's a big thing, and you are very much indebted to me. And you say, man, that brother Adkins, he's my friend. If you want to buy me a car, for an example. There you I, go. I, I, could, I could. If I purchased you a car, I think I could have your devotion. Yeah, and, uh, we, should, we should try it. <laughs> but, well, let's put it in practice later. Um but, but if you understand the concept, you've been greatly blessed by me. I would doubt after an act like that, and I showed you great love, and I mean great compassion and great care, I doubt you would want to do anything openly to tear me down. In fact, I bet your spirit would be the opposite of that. If someone else said anything against me, you'd probably say, hey, wait a minute, I know him to be a good man. He's, he's been a faithful man and a faithful friend to me. You would defend my honor if someone tried to disparage it in any way. Well, the idea John's saying is, how could I go on sinning? How could I go on an open rebellion against the law of God when God in his love has come down and mercifully saved me? There's no way that person wants to continue on. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't commit an act of rebellion. 
That doesn't mean, according to Scripture, that we won't sin. But it does mean this. When I sin, Josh, I should be heartbroken over it. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Very quickly, and we see these, uh, these, these things happen in the Scriptures. Very quickly, something should grab my heart and I say, I, I don't want to do that to God. I don't want to live that way. God, yeah. forgive me, restore me, get me back on the right path. So I guess that, that idea sort of just stemmed from the greatest gift is just that, that whole thing we talked about earlier. You know, he removes the hopelessness, the anger, and then all of a sudden you see that love, joy, hope, peace, all that good stuff. Okay. Um, so James, he says even, um, I don't have this one quoted, but he, he says, to not do good is sin, to not do what is right. Yes, sin. sins of omission. Yeah. 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 And, um, but I, I really like, cause James is, I, I guess I would call it my book to action. You know, he talks about, Hey, let's, let's go do things. Yes. 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 And, uh, you know, one thing I want to focus on in the podcast as, as we go is finding inspirational stories of what people are doing in the church. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, even, um, I'm looking to talk to Gene Pike with, uh, he's doing the, the mission house, helping those kids in Peru. And I just, sure. I think that's great. Yeah. And I think that's, yes. um, that's putting, uh, that's putting works with your faith. Yeah. Which is you're well aware. James says if you if you say you believe and you do nothing, your faith is dead. Living faith does something. It has some type of a manifestation. Actually, I love James two. This is one of my favorites in James two, because he um, I want to say, I want to find exactly where it is. He's he's talking about a man coming up asking for. Okay, yeah. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? It's just like such, I I say sarcasm. Like I read that and I just, you know, I imagine like, you you know my parents. You know Mm -hmm. my parents. We're a sarcastic bunch of people. But I could just see, I'm hungry and you just said, hey, get food. Mm How does that help me? Like, what, what do you mean? Well, and that's his analogy to faith without works. That's, that's really a condemnation of people who say, I believe in God. But then if you go look at their life, you see nothing that reflects that. Yeah. He says that's as empty as going to a guy that's freezing and saying, man, be blessed and have a coat on. Well, you haven't helped him in reality. <laughs> what's give him a, a coat. <laughs> exactly. If you don't give him the coat, you have done nothing. What James is trying to make a point, the guy that says, I believe, but there's no manifestation whatsoever in his life is like that guy without a coat. You, there's been no difference. There's been no change. Words don't mean anything unless there's something that's taking place. But it does make me go back, you know, we're talking about unity. If someone, you know, I know, God forbid, but let's say I got married, I formed adultery, mm-hmm. and, you know, something ridiculous enough that you know I haven't done because yes, I'm not married. Yes, yes, yes. But I, um, God forbid, say I, say I sin like that. Yeah. Could you still call me your brother even though I sin? Well, if you've, if you've repented, if you go back to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, yeah. Paul addresses the church and says they've allowed someone to stay in the church, stay in the fellowship of the church that's committed an open sin, and they're yeah. practicing that sin. And he tells them, you've got to deal with them. And, and the way they deal with them is to put him outside of the fellowship. It isn't that they're going to call him names or treat him ugly. What they're going to simply do is say, listen, man, you're not right with God. Why? Because if you're living this way in an open practice of sin, we know you're not right with God. And so Paul says you got to do this so he can feel that situation that he's in and then repent of his sins. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul comes along and writes to the church and says, man, he's repented 
And then he kind of gets onto the church and says, now you need to forgive him and restore him. So there's two sides to that, Josh. If you're living in open habitual sin and you've been my brother, then the first thing I've got to do is say, man, you can't live that way and be a child of God. Why? Because we just read in 1 John, no one who loves him and knows him practices sin. It's an impossibility. Now, I might sound a little blunt in this, but um, I I think our my generation, I I just I think they're weak. Yes, but a lot of people will hear that and they, oh well, aren't you called to still love them? That's not loving them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you and I would say no, that that is loving him. Correcting is loving. Yeah. Um, How could we better help those see who think that's not love? That's just being mean. How can we help? Well, love has to exist within the realm of truth. Yeah. Um, you, you can't love outside of truth. And and I have two children, as you well know, and um, as they were growing up, they would do things that were, that were disobedience. And at those times, their mother and I had to deal with them. And the Bible says, if you have a son or daughter who's rebellious and you don't discipline them, you don't love them. In fact, you hate them. And so the Bible equates when lack of discipline, where it would help and, and create character in a child, to be not love, but instead to be hate. And so what the world might say is, that's so mean. I always told my children, if, if I yell at you and you're about to walk out in front of a car and I say, hey, stop that. Stop right where you are. Yeah. I did it. Did I, did I do it because I didn't like you or did I do it because I loved you? And the obvious answer is, if you love someone, you surely wouldn't want them walking out in front of a car. Oh, yeah. And so you might have to get angry with them. You might have to change the inflection of your voice. Why? To get their attention, to get them to stop, to save them from a terrible tragedy. Because you love them. Because you yeah, love which, them. Which, I, I don't remember who I heard say it, but, I, you know, it's a, it's like the example, just like, you know, you, you look at nature, you look at biology, mm-hmm. and someone attacks a mother-son, they will rip you apart. Mm-hmm. And, and the statement at the end of that, that whole little analogy they went through, they said, love isn't weak, love is strong. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the thing to me. Is, you know, a lot of people, my generation, you know, they think love is this really almost passive kind of thing. I'm like, no, listen, love, love is straight up going down and dying. You know, that's, yeah. that's it's aggressive yeah. almost. Well, yeah. well what, what I would say to anyone that said, well, listen, that's not loving. I would say, well, then you're telling me the loving response would be to let someone continue on on a path that's going to destroy them. Yeah. There's no way you'll ever convince me, Josh, that that's a loving response if I let someone knowingly go down a path that I know is heading for heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So I did have, I I don't know if you wanted to tell the story or not, but I know when we were talking about Unity originally, you mentioned a guy who came to you recently and... Not everybody in who he was trying to have unified did agree on the person of Jesus. Yes. Um, I'll share what I can about that story. Okay. Um, I'll just say it was a um, it was someone from Europe that was connected in the church world in Europe. Yeah. Um, and, um, and for whatever reason, he had asked a fellow about meeting with an American pastor while he was in the country. This individual called me. We met together and... Um, Long story short, he was part of a movement within their uh, church identity to try to unite peoples from different faiths, um, from the Muslim faith, from the um, uh, from the Hindu groups. From, in fact, he said there were nine different major religions in just the area that he lived and worked. And what they were doing is trying to unite them. And so he asked me what I thought about that. And you know, most times when people say, "Well, you know, I'm trying to unify," 
everybody just said, oh, well, unity is a great thing. But I, I felt immediately there's something wrong with what he was telling me. And I asked him, well, what happens to Jesus? Is Jesus going to be held up as the only way, the only truth, the only life? Are we going to tell people no man goes to the Father but by him? And I could quickly tell by his response that that wasn't their intention at all. They were instead trying to create some type of a unity where a Muslim person and a Hindu man and a Christian man could all come together, find something that they could unite about, and then go on their merry way. Not even mention the stuff they no. don't unite on. Exactly. It's almost an avoidance of topics that would knock us off. Seems really, I mean, even if, you know, we're just talking about regular relationships to people and just, hey, we're just going to not talk about this subject. You know, I think any, even worldly psychologists would say that's not healthy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But then, you know, they encourage that if it's something they don't like. Well, I, th- I think, you know, if you and I had a subject among us and it was a hot topic and it, we knew that when we get on it, we're going to disagree. Yeah. But it's not a salvic issue. It's not going to change whether we're either, either of us are saved. So yeah. it's not something I have to necessarily broach to rescue Josh or you have to broach to rescue Pastor Atkins, right? Yeah. Can we avoid that? Yeah, I think you can avoid certain things like that. Um, but when it comes to Christ, if I'm going to say, let's all come together, and I know we're talking about religious groups, yeah. and I'm supposed to be a religious man trying to do a religious work, and I'm not going to exalt Christ as the only way of salvation, then I have failed you desperately. Um, yeah. And I failed Christ is what I've done. Now, this might be a tougher question. and I don't remember the name of the book, but I, I can I'll drop it in the notes here. Let's say um, there's a book I read is a guy who I guess you'd say was a world missionary. And he met a bunch of different people interviewing him. And there was a lot of groups that he had met. Like I, I forget, there was one that I think it was like Hindus for Christ or something. And it was where they didn't want to take on the word Christian because in that society it was almost like mm-hmm. taking on that means you're a, a bad person, you're yeah. a murderer, you're all yeah. this stuff. So yeah. they wanted to believe in the person of Jesus and believe in the resurrection without taking on that. Would you be able to call them brother or sister since they can't take on the title of Christian? Or are we still just... Well, I think you'd have to think about the first century church in Rome. Um, They hid away from Nero. They were outlaws of the state. Um, I mean, they had to do a lot of things. In fact, if you know the the symbol for Christianity used at that time was a fish. uh, Just a simple drawing of a fish. Well, the reason they did that is when they met people and they weren't sure, you know, is this guy a believer or not? they would draw this figure in the sand. And if the other person understood what was going on and say, yes, I'm a Christian as well, well, then now we can be open, we can have fellowship. Um, But if not, they wouldn't carry it on any further. The Bible says this, it says, be be wise as serpents, but be harmless as doves. And what that means is, Josh, if if I'm dealing in a world and a culture that's wicked, that's anti-Christian, well, I've got to use a lot of wisdom. Because yeah. there might be people on every hand that want to give me grief personally, uh, give the gospel grief. And so I might have to be very, very wise in that um, and be very, very careful. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think you'd have to look at the particular situation. But we see examples in the scripture where some of this is played out and in, in church history. So we do think it's possible, even if we don't necessarily agree with all the doctrine, if we agree about who Jesus is, that we could still call them brothers and sisters. Might be not necessarily be able to be with them. Well, well, what Jesus says, and um, and Paul writes to Timothy about this, you know, there's certain things you have to believe. Um, they're, they're non-negotiables. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, and you referenced one of your professors. And so it would be d- dependent on what we're talking about. Yeah. If we're talking about peripheral issues, well, yeah, that's fine. 
But if we're talking about, you know, who Jesus is, how a person's saved, uh, those type things, no, that, that's not something we could disagree on. But if we are talking about peripheral issues, yeah, we could still have fellowship. All right, cool. One more question before I start wrapping this up then is, yeah. um, how do we, because like you said, there is, there is a lot of division in the church. You know, there is a lot. Anyone who's been in the church has seen it. How do we, if we're trying to cast that vision for overall unity in the church, where do we go from here to see more people who agree with Jesus working together as opposed to dividing more? Well, you know, I told you the other week, one of my favorite chapters is, you know, where Paul speaks to this is Ephesians 4. And, and one of the things he does immediately calls for the believers to, to operate in humility. Um, that means that I'm not prideful in my opinions. Um, I'm not prideful in, if I do know something, let's say it is truth, yeah. that I'm not exalted in that truth. The Bible says the danger of knowledge is that it puffs me up. It makes me think I'm somebody. And so he calls them the humility, calls them to gentleness. Yeah. Um, you know, how I deal with another person, even if they're in error, can have a big influence on whether they're going to listen to me or not. And so, oh, yeah. so my spirit of gentleness, it says patience, bearing with one another in love. So maybe, maybe we don't see eye to eye, but I, I'm patient with you. We work together until maybe we can all come together. And then, you know, he goes on to talk about the unity of the spirit and he says, maintain that. And what he's saying is that it already exists. You and I don't have to create unity in the spirit because he says maintain it. You can't maintain something that's already there unless it's already there. You see that's what I'm one saying? thing I think I think is crazy about you know camp conferences and all that kind of stuff yeah. is that I, I'm almost, almost every time you know you go and I run into someone else who's just, just as excited about Jesus as I am. Mm-hmm. It's like it's almost like we've been friends for years, and it's like I didn't have to do anything to be united. Well, that's excellent. Why were you united? Because you were excited about the same things. So Paul says that very thing, Josh. He says. When he talks about spiritual unity, he talks about there's one body, one church, one spirit, one hope, and then he goes on and he says, um, he says you got to you got to maintain that, and he talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, and so what Paul is saying is the realities of the faith, the realities that unifies are already there. That's the fact that there's only one Jesus, there's only one Spirit, there's only one faith, and so. And I think we mentioned this the other day. It's not like you and I figure out some way to, to be unified. It's that you and I come closer to Jesus. Yeah. If I get closer to Jesus and you get closer to Jesus, well, guess what just happened? We got closer to each other. Yeah. And so this unity is not saying, let's find us something so we can all agree on it. It's let's all get closer to God. Let's all get united around his word. In fact, later in this chapter, Paul says, God gave gifts to the church, pastors, teachers. Why? Yeah. It's for the perfecting of the saints, for the unity of the faith so that we could all come together. And so the church's goal and job is to teach the gospel, teach the word. As I come to believe it, as you come to believe it, what happens is we come together. So we have this cheesy saying for the podcast. It's, we want to see the whole church be whole again. So if we want to see the whole church be whole again, we see the whole church get closer to Jesus. And as we do, yeah. we'll just find ourselves whole. I don't. I think that's a perfect way to say it. And it, you know, and, and I would say this, especially in our culture in our day, it's the Jesus of the Bible. We we have Jesus said, "If you love me, you'll keep my commandments." Yeah. And he says in John fifteen, he says, "He who loves me and keeps my commandments, the Father loves him, and we have fellowship together." The secret to unity, the secret to fellowship, is just coming to God into His Word, coming in obedience and agreement with God. And as we do that, 
we find ourselves suddenly sitting side by side. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Pastor, I appreciate you being here, man. I um I know they can follow Harvest Ministries on Facebook. Yes. It's, it's just Harvest Ministries Church Got a Prophecy. Yes. yes. Okay. And then um how, how else could our listeners, if they wanted to support you personally, how else could they do that? Well, if they, if they want to listen to um, any of the teachings of the church, if they want to be involved in any way, harvestministries.cc is a way they can reach our website and they can find connectivity there and information there. You know, we did used to have, I think we still do, we're on the website where it had other stuff that we could go out and support other missions on there as well. Right? Yes, yes. Um, we have different things you can pray for, different things you can connect to. Uh, we have information about our Mission House ministry and, and all of our ministries. Oh, excellent site. Excellent ministry. It's why I'm here. Praise <laughs> the Lord. Praise Good to the see Lord. you. Well, that being said, if um, someone wanted to do what you do, you know, they, you went to Columbia. Man, I can't speak. Columbia International. There we go. Mm-hmm. You were able to study and find yourself here, the yeah. head pass, which I, I know is a lot of hard work. How, do, how would someone go about that if they... Well, well the first thing, Josh, is... is you know, it's like what the writer of Hebrews said about the high priest, that they they were they were called by God. Yeah. The ministry is a calling. So what I would tell someone first off is it's not about just saying, hey, I'd like to do this. It's about feeling a deep calling upon their life. And again, back to being born again or how you feel when yeah. you're saved. It's one of those things that you can't really describe, but you know it when it happens. It's God uh, pulling you to himself, pulling you to uh, the fact that he wants you to work for him. Uh, and we all work for him, but he wants you to do that vocationally in a, in, a, in a ministry situation. And so the first thing is you get a call to God. The second thing I would tell that individual is get up under your pastor and go to him and say, Pastor, I feel like God's dealing with my heart. I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something from the Lord. What would you tell me? And then there are good steps. You and I both believe highly in education. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was saved, uh, went for three and a half years out into Arabia and I believe the Lord taught him there uh, personally, where he had these one-on-one glorious uh, teaching sessions with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what, what I glean from that is once a person's called, then they need to be trained and equipped, and then they need to go out. Yeah. So it's kind of a three-step process, well, if you will. That sounds good to me. That's yeah. good. But thanks for coming. I mean, I came here, but you know, thanks for being on the well, cast. Thank you for coming and letting me be part of this. I really appreciate it. I'm honored. Appreciate you, Pastor. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Your host, Joshua speaking. If you like the podcast, make sure you comment below or share it with a friend. And if you have a story or know anyone with a good story just about church unity or something inspirational for the whole church, be sure to email us at thezowteam at gmail.com. Again, that's thezowteam, V-Z-A-O team at gmail.com. And be sure to visit the website at teamzow.net. Oh! One more thing, I forgot to mention this in the podcast, but before we go, I want to let everybody know Francis Chan will be in the last episode of the season of this podcast, season one. He just uh, isn't aware of it yet. I want to make sure we say that every single podcast. Thanks for listening.